Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I've decided to do a new podcast. This one will be called Brown People, a podcast where I speak to politicians, pundits, mothers and thinkers about discovering the stories of people of colour. I'll be your host as we dive into the lives of thoughtful individuals who have maybe caught a controversy but have definitely lived a life worth talking about. We'll be talking about the struggles, the triumphs and everything in between as we hear the experiences of people from all over the globe. We'll be getting to the root of what drives them, how they see the world and how the world sees them and how they've overcome the obstacles that life has thrown in their way. This is a podcast that will be an exploration and a conversation. So join us as we shine a light on the stories, struggles, and we look at the lives of people of colour. Please subscribe to it today, whether you're a brown person or not. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Rodwell Brown, who is in Brighton. I'm competing with my daughter. That means that I'm 15.8 degrees north and 0.2 degrees west. I'm literally just under Greenwich, plus or minus 50 miles. And with me is the wondrous, organised grown-up Claire Asprey. Claire Asprey, where are you today? As usual, I'm back home at 52.6 degrees north and 0.5 degrees west in Bedfordshire. But we're in the same country, which makes a change. Absolutely, and we were actually going to meet up today, but family commitments on my part somewhat got in the way. Next time, Claire, next time. Matt Corner is the podcast dedicated to the love of maps and to all things cartographic. So if Peter's your projection, we're in the right place. We're recording this episode during Pride Month, and fittingly, our guests are Adam Nathaniel Furman and Josh Mardell, editors of Queer Spaces, an atlas of LGBTQIA basis and it was a recently published book by the Royal Institute of British Architects. Now we have an audio postcard from R. Ken McDonald and it's about Vermont and I'll tell you what folks 
It's epic. You don't even need the visuals to see the wondrous cinematic nature of his audio postcard. That's coming up later. Now, please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts and any other podcast platforms because the more reviews we get, uh, the basically, the more listeners we get because we go, but there's Apple Podcasts charts. Now, if you can't use Apple Podcasts, please review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you write us a review that it does get on Apple Podcasts, we will read that out in a subsequent show. And again, this time we're live on Zoom with Muck Corner listeners. And if you want to join in with the next broadcast, join our Facebook group to get the link. And if you're not on Facebook, send a message to us through Twitter to ask for the link and we'll send you and you can join in. We usually call it the first Saturday of the month at 6pm UK time, which is 1pm Eastern and 10am Pacific. So over to our special guests for today, Adam and Josh, and welcome both to you and congratulations on your book, which is incredibly beautiful. It's not technically a map, but it has global reach. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to put the book together. Yeah, sure. And thanks very much for letting us be here. The name of the book is, we should say, Queer Spaces, an Atlas of LGBTQIA plus places and stories published by, as Tess said, by the Royal Institute of British Architects, which is a bit unlike anything they've done in the past, really. And it's, it is an atlas, but it's really a compendium of spaces that have been important to LGBTQIA plus people throughout time and place, really, especially from the mid 18th century onwards. It's important to the stress also that it's an edited book. So Adam and I were the editors of it, but we actually have 55 multidisciplinary authors from many different parts of the world who are filmmakers, archivists, curators, academic historians. So it's the great variety of people in the book. And it's supposed to chart the urban geography, the built environment that's been important to queer people, which is really the first time, I think, that a book quite like this and this sort of orientation has been published. So who am I? I'm an architectural historian and I'm currently an associate lecturer in the history of arts at the University of York and Adam. Hi, thank you for the invitation. I'm Adam Nathaniel Furman. I'm an artist and a designer from an architectural background. I studied architecture, worked in architecture, taught in architecture, but I'm not qualified as an architect. But also I'm involved in publishing, teaching and interiors. The book is something that is very much a real passion project because if you're coming from an architectural context, there's a lot of surveys of architectural history from different areas. There's a lot of books which call themselves atlases of a particular style, atlas of tropical modernism, atlas of modern architecture, atlas of postmodernism. And they chart a very particular type of architectural cartography that is very limited in the scope of who it allows to be included. It's inevitably, unfortunately, because of the makeup of the architectural profession all over the world, tends to have completely excluded queer history queer geographies and queer spaces from all over the world. And so this was a kind of very concerted effort over the past few years to create a kind of pedigree or an archive, a map really, for people to be able to access and see their own history spread all over the world as queer designers. And we call it an atlas, but it's treated in a very queer way in the sense that we are trying, or we have, usurped geographical distance or we've taken things which are very far apart and purposefully joined them together. We've also taken things which are very far apart chronologically and brought them together. So this isn't actually an atlas about creating connectivities through time for queer communities that have very often been isolated, lonely, separated and without a sort of deep 
broad international history. So in a way, it's a kind of anti-Atlas. <laughs> but it's still welcome in that corner. And I think also the word Atlas, it is mappy in the sense that it's mapping something. And we, we like, I like to think it's mapping out a new history of less talked about accounts of sexuality from the past. Yeah, I think one of the things that really appeals to me about the concept really is that, that this idea that people have a very sort of personal sense of space and mental mapping where particular locations are special. And I thought, think of this because I was just recording an audio postcard yesterday walking through my village and talking about all the locations where family lived or the graves of my ancestors or these sort of things. That works in a lot of different ways where there are places which just, which might, and no one might walk past, but it's incredibly special for a particular reason and for a particular community. And I think that that was really captured well in the book as well. I think there's something about safe spaces, especially, that is really compelling. And I just wondered how you came about trying to focus on some of those special locations. I suppose, I don't know, I'd start by answering that from personal experience, I think, if I may. So I did study architectural history at Cambridge, which is a really super safe place to be queer, in fact. And Robinson College in particular had the best parties at the time. But prior to that, I grew up in Letchworth Garden City. It sounds like that's close to where you are reasonably. I, went, I learned to drive in Letchworth. Yeah. <laughs> nice place to learn to drive. Lots of live roundabouts, of course, famously. So I grew up in Letchworth on the council estate at the edge that many residents didn't quite consider part of that dream. But I guess the important thing there is that I didn't really know of any safe space. So I had to really suppress bits of my queerness in order to survive the trip, whether that's down to the newsagents or the trip to school in the late 1990s. And for me, it was really just my shower was the safe space listening to to show tunes, I don't know, of Angela Lansbury. or But then at Cambridge, I went to sixth form and it was a very middle-class space where queer nurse was much more visible. There were boys kissing in my study of photography and my first experiences of queerness became manifest in, in the dark room, which makes darkness is a key sort of place where that lends itself to queer experience for obvious reasons. And then also in my youth as well, another queer space, safe space, was actually the conference venues of Young Labour, which I used to be part of. I'm no longer a member of the party, but that included conferences in Grantham, which was ironically Mount Margaret Thatcher's hometown. I suppose I came to learn of the importance of queer spaces from a personal perspective. And so in the book, we were very keen to make sure that we didn't decide what a queer space could look like, or what a safe space was, nor how important it was, or what its orientation was. Rather, we invited other people to tell us that and to try and, from an editorial perspective, respect their definitions, their understanding, the qualities they found important. Do you want to add anything, Adam? So people get very emotional when they read the book, especially so if they're people who are queer and don't necessarily fit in, even into the sort of dominant idea of gayness, which is a kind of very narrow understanding very often of kind of sort of cis, white, gay men and women if you don't necessarily fit into that mold like reading coming across a book like this where people where you feel seen where you see spaces that very often have allowed you to exist really it can get quite emotional seeing so many of them together and also seeing so many other people that you didn't know existed going through exactly the same all over the world throughout the past 200 years and for me it's been an emotional journey being obsessed with maps i get extremely excited about every edition of national geographic I mean, the best birthday present of my entire life was the Times Atlas. Uh, and I would just pour over every page and imagine what these places were like. And you know, this is something that continued with me up until sort of the end of my teens, because there was a kind of freedom in those cartography, the freedom of imagination, where actually I was outed. I came up, then I was outed to my whole area. And it was actually physically unsafe for me to go around. In my part of London as a teenager, I would be, I was attacked 
regularly. I was thrown out of pubs. I was, people would come at me with knives in part, um, and it wasn't safe for me to go around school. And actually my cartography of London had no such freedom that I had in my imagination with these maps, not only real maps, but also maps in fantasy novels, for instance. The safety map of London became really important to me when I discovered queer spaces. My navigation of the city was basically contained to areas which were queer friendly or places in other parts of London that had queer spaces where I could be accepted or queer adjacent spaces of people of people who were effectively allies. For instance, particularly with me, it was the kind of punk scene and, and the rave scene was very kind of queer adjacent. And that's something that a lot of people experienced all over the world. Their maps, their understanding of the world is basically either contained because they are out or they cannot hide who they are to the stepping stones of these spaces or if they are in the closet and they are or they are able to hide themselves there's a kind of split reality where they are moving through the kind of normal map of everyone's everyday lives but then their real life is contained to the hidden map I say when it's an anti-atlas, I don't really mean anti-atlas. I do just mean a queer atlas. It's an atlas of not only within cities, but across space and across time, because they're always very similar to each other, even if the technology and the buildings change. How much of what you guys are doing is historical as opposed to present, considering that different bits of our society have an acceptance or maybe might be a grudging acceptance of, of gay, queer spaces? compared to, let's say, 50 years ago, where I'm presuming would have been much, much less readily acceptable, let alone for it to be mapped and to be published. Hopefully in there was some level of a question. There is a potential irony there that you're mentioning, but very much, I think your question was a UK or certainly very Western-based question because you're inside uh, England or the UK and San Francisco. And I think that there is a danger, perhaps in those parts of the world, that increased acceptance might lead to less documentation, although I don't think so. But of course, in the book, we're talking about many other societies where that just simply isn't the case and things are, it's not a kind of teleological curve of improvement. On the contrary, things in, 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 in Eastern Europe are worsening day by day. We have spaces in the book that are very much, I mean, we have Bangladesh, Kampala, Russia, where it's a different question entirely. Yes, this is a question that we do get, particularly from, I guess, well-meaning people who are part of liberal Britain and the United States, I guess, who, who are themselves much more open and welcoming and have queer friends. And but it is true that there has been a massive improvement. And if you speak to some, specifically the sort of established gay, particularly male, white, homosexual men who feel that they're now established in society, they don't necessarily understand the sort of need for spaces. But while gay spaces and gay and lesbian spaces are not as necessary as they were and therefore have been closing quite a lot and young gay people gay and lesbian people can integrate quite well with their friends this is not the same at all for the entire coalition so it the lgbtqia plus is actually really um and the word queer is really important it's not gay it's not lesbian only trans people are under attack to an unbelievably vicious degree people who are gender non-conforming are constantly under attack and this is now once again pulling in gay and lesbians um there was a unfortunately a horrible case very recently in Marks and Spencer where a self-identifying butch lesbian was ridiculed and uh, verbally attacked because they thought that she was male and shouldn't be going into the changing rooms at all which was bizarre because they were unisex but anyway there is a lot of need for spaces they're just not the spaces 
that existed in the 19, the 1970s, 1980s. They're not the sort of gay and lesbian bars, pubs, and discos. They're different kinds of spaces, which we've started to document in the book. And that's specifically in the United States and Britain and other Western countries. But frankly, everywhere else, all of the spaces that you were mentioning are still vitally important, still very much exist. And as well as that, there are different types of cultures. So for instance, Josh always mentions or likes to mention these two examples of the Hijra community in South Asia who don't quite fall into the same, into the sort of gender categories or the sexuality categories that we have and the trans travesty community of Latin America, who we have represented via Argentina, who also don't fit those categories, who create totally unique types of spaces. So I think what you're talking about, the type of acceptance is only for a quite a narrow group within the coalition and their particular spaces that served them over recent history. But there are still lots and lots of other spaces currently, both online and offline, in Britain and America, as well as elsewhere in the world, that are quite literally life-giving. I would add to that, if I may, in York. I think I've recognized there aren't many queer spaces in York. And actually, for me, as a gay man, as a cis gay man, I haven't, I haven't found the spaces that perhaps I've wanted and that, isn't, that also isn't accommodated in normative bars. But what I have recognized is the absolute necessity of the queer space that we do have, which is a bookshop in York for young trans, especially young, but also definitely also much older people and trans and non-binary people and actually it's no less than a home from home for them it's no less than a vital infrastructure for expressing oneself for one's selfhood for accessing resources for accessing society books conversations so in that sense the building type all of a sudden is thrown in the air it's not just a bookshop it's a school it's a community center it's a helpline it's an alternative home quickly add a lot of these spaces like the bookstores libraries, archives, the street parties even, a lot of them find ways to channel their resources to create educational real resources and contexts and publications. Because it's really a question very often of life or death and access to healthcare, access to housing, access to education. A lot of these people don't have any other ways to do that. And being in a physical space of meeting up and being given these resources, you can't get that on Grindr. You can't get that on forums. The sort of the camaraderie and the sense of not being alone as well as being given these resources can very often give these people the possibility to continue with their lives, which can otherwise seem quite bleak. They're very important. No, And, th- and thank you for the, those points of clarification. Listeners to this podcast will know that I'm of Jamaican parentage and Jamaica has a disgraceful record when it comes down to LGBTQIA plus rights and access. And the first Pride March in Kingston only happened in, I think, about 20, 2016. And that the bravery that was shown by those people on that march bears testimony. And your work is definitely needed in, in many places around the world. I'm acutely aware that I somewhat in a liberal bubble, somewhat, but there are many bits of the world where people do not have the same access to just be able to be themselves in, in public. I'm acutely aware of that. Can you just tell us how, because you have collected data from all over the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah, so it's quite long and complicated, actually. Adam and I were approached. I think really because we have these sort of respective, sorry, I can't think of the word, careers as a designer and as a historian. But then what comes with that is also different networks. And it's the strength of network that's enabled the book to be 
as expensive as it is. So the process has really been, we had in mind, and Adam's much better explaining this, a set of types that we felt were really important in, in understanding queer lives, queer experiences, and queer spaces that occur that we wanted to cover. And in a sense, I think we did that very well, but it was mostly reaching out firstly to the people we did know, but then actually to try and plug those gaps by trying to expand our networks, by being very open-minded and talking to a contributor and saying, do you know anyone that can speak for this or for this, etc.?" But as part of that, we also were very much aware that we had enormous limitations on what could be included. So a book of what I think is 93 or 92 spaces could we now know could well be 192 spaces. So it was trying to somehow, and it's always problematic, the problem of method and the complicated phenomena, but we're trying to have examples that don't try to be comprehensive, but that speak for queerness and all its variety and diversity, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think looking through the book, the variety of locations and of types of places, I thought it was fantastic. And, and I think there's also something about how it covers that historical aspect and queer spaces over time. So what did you want to say about queer history alongside the queer geography? Yeah, maybe I'll expand on on, on that and then Stieg into to answer the second question. So just for, for example, to give a couple of examples of, of that, if I'm changing the subject too much, just tell me. We had, for example, sites of LGBT reappropriation of what we might call heteronormative institutions. One that comes to mind is the Santiago Apostol Cathedral in Nicaragua. And this has really nice illustrations in the book. And this, basically, this queer underground settlement for queer people in the 1970s through to the 1990s. Of course, homosexuality was criminalized at the time it was taken over. So this is a neoclassical, early 20th century neoclassical building inspired by, I think, French prototypes built by Belgian architects or engineers. Really heavily damaged and deemed unsafe following the Nicaragua earthquake in the 70s enclosed another sort of main cathedral was constructed elsewhere and the point being it was made it was unsafe for normal use and unfit for ecclesiological stuff but conversely and ironically became a safe space for queer Nicaraguans and so that geography that you just talked about became a central geography rather than a marginalized one so the queers all of a sudden were occupying this central space and central and we might say canonical building type and I suppose in terms of Maybe just thinking about that that link that you're talking about, I think I've been very influenced by the sorts of stuff that's come before this book that has aligned those two things. It's aligned queer history, that's aligned geography and the agency, the influence of the latter on the former and maybe vice versa. And Matt Holbrook's book, Queer London, is a particular example of that. So again, using a really extraordinary array of sources, some of which I think you've mentioned, those sort of 1950s, indeed earlier maps of molly houses and urinals, etc. The temporal, the topographic variations, the cartographic variations of queer experience, the micro-geographies of public queer life, have all been brought together. And it's but particularly sites of male-to-male interaction, whether that's cinemas, whether that's musicals, theatres, pubs, clubs, whatever, whether that's respectable Piccadilly institutions or the rough trade, the embankment. So I, I found that very important. And I think not self-consciously when I came to the book, but now thinking about it, this sort of mapping has been done before us in that sense. And it's reflective of this, what tends to be called the spatial turn um, in 21st century queer history. So in that sense, or not just, in fact, it's not just the physical city, but the built environment is not just a kind of passive backdrop, but it, it actually shapes, it, it helps sustain, it helps form these, these cultures. That is a perfect time for us just to do a quick pause and uh, it's time for the audio postcard. The other day, I was at North 44 Degrees 
30.707 minutes, west 73 degrees, 13.757 minutes, which placed me just north of Burlington, Vermont, near where the Winooski River flows into Lake Champlain. I was finding a geocache at those coordinates, but I didn't travel hundreds of miles from my North Carolina home just for that. I was in Vermont because my wife and I love the state and are considering it as our future home in retirement. And as I was at this spot on the grounds of the Ethan Allen Homestead because of the remarkable history of General Allen and the state he helped establish. Most Americans know about the Texas Republic and the California Republic, but far fewer realize that Vermont was also an independent republic from when it declared independence from the crown in 1777 to when it joined the United States in 1791, it was not one of the 13 original states. The trouble with Vermont goes back to the 1740s, when the colonial governor of New Hampshire, Benning Wentworth, chose to construe a boundary settlement between New Hampshire and Massachusetts as giving his colony rights to land between Lake Champlain and the Connecticut River, which it did not. In fairness, most of that land belonged to the Abenaki, the native people there, but under law, it was under the jurisdiction of New York. That didn't stop Governor Benning from issuing numerous land grants in the territory, and among those who bought land under those grants was Ethan Allen. When New York officials came along to try to collect fees from settlers who'd already paid New Hampshire officials, Ethan Allen formed a group of vigilantes called the Green Mountain Boys to force them out. They were kind of a terrorist outfit. They were also forcing out settlers who bought land from New York rather than New Hampshire. And it was probably part of an effort to clean up their image that led Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys to join the American Revolution by aiding in the capture of Fort, kind of Fort Ticonderoga from the British. Later, when he was passed over to lead an assault on Montreal, he went into Canada with a small force of his own where he was quickly defeated. He was a POW in Cornwall for a time, and then he was paroled to British-occupied New York City until Alexander Hamilton arranged his release. However, once he got back home, he found Alexander Hamilton's father-in-law a major thorn in his side. This was Philip Schuyler, famous to Hamilton musical fans as the father of Angelica, Peggy, Eliza, the Schuyler sisters. Yeah, he was also a senator from New York, and he hadn't forgiven the Green Mountain Boys for basically seizing the easternmost part of his state. So even though the region had declared independence and was now calling itself the state of Vermont, Schuyler blocked all attempts by them to join the Union. While Vermont was an independent republic, it was always committed to being a U.S. state. They even put the number 14 on their coins inside a star surrounded by 13 others. It wasn't until 1791, when New York needed a free state to balance the expected addition of Kentucky, that Vermont was finally allowed to join the United States. Sadly, Ethan Allen did not live to see the day. He passed away at his homestead near the mouth of the Winooski River in 1789. He lives on in state history, however, and if you visit Vermont's cute little capitol building in Montpelier, he'll greet you at the main door with protruding eyes and flared nostrils, looking as wild and stone as he ever was in life. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That was wonderful. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for rescuing me, considering I didn't have the time to edit together your wonderful audio postcard. But Ken, I had some I had some digital breakup. There's a bit where I thought you were going to go into song, but I didn't quite hear it. Can you just re- reprise me of that again, please? Just that line. Angelica, Peggy, Eliza, the Skyler sisters. Surely you've seen Hamilton the musical. Uh, of course, I just need you to sing that again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. I must admit, Ken, I did know that Vermont was the next state, but I had forgotten that actually he was floating off in, in the hinterland for a little bit. Yeah, and even for a time during the revolution, they were negotiating with the crown to possibly rejoin and become part of Canada. Big mistake that they didn't. You'd be celebrating the Queen's 70th Jubilee if you had. And they'd have better health care. Yeah. And an extra bank holiday. Yes, yes. One other thing I need to ask you, Ken. So normally when Americans say they go, they're thinking of retiring, they go south. Shouldn't you be Florida bound, but you're going north? There are concerns with climate and climate change, both meteorological and political. And depending on how badly things may go south in the next few years, we may want to move north. <laughs> now, everyone, this is the time where we say to our massed ranks of viewers who are live with us on Zoom, do you have a question? And that's, this is the great thing about recording the podcast live on Zoom, is that your Nick Roworths, your Sarahs, your Ronalds, etc. can fundamentally join in. I will start proceedings. When did this project actually start? And tell us about that kind of editing process. I'm always really fascinated when you say, look, I think we have enough now. Do you say we have enough now because we know there's going to be a volume two? What may to be a volume two? I think this is good enough to get it out the door. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. We had obvious limitations set that was set from the publisher. And actually the publisher, which is the RIBA, was very generous. And the, the book kept getting bigger. And if you think about how books are made and how paper is folded, etc., it can only grow in certain increments. And it often kept growing by 16 pages here, 16 pages there. 
but at some point we had to stop based on our budget. We also had a great deal of sponsors, of architectural sponsors, who majorly amped up our image budget as well. So that was important. We stopped when we had to, when we had a kind of date for public. I think Adam was still putting in contributions pretty much a week before the final deadline because we just wanted to try continually to be as representative as we possibly could be in terms of geography and, and typology, especially. Does that answer your question? What was the other one? Time Sorry, scale, time scale, as, and also, yeah. yeah, editorial, yeah, when it comes to an end. Yeah, it was also a matter of editing out. So we compiled an incredibly broad range of spaces and contributors. And we, to be honest, it wasn't really a matter of, I, I did add some spaces at the very end, but that was because they were very specifically of regions and voices that were missing. So we had a lot and lot of spaces, but we were very careful not to have too many of any one type. So we have kind of I think it's maximum three of representing any sort of one type of space. And we have spaces of different classes, spaces of different sexualities, spaces of different geographical locations, spaces from different historical periods, and also to different types of spaces. So the creation of the imaginary spaces, the spaces of life-affirming journeys, the symbolic space of cultural or reappropriating of paternalistic monuments. And each of these had to be represented. So there was a lot of cutting back until the very end. You know, if anything, we would be happy to do five more of these books or like a kind of those old encyclopedias where you just have a whole row in a library of encyclo- of books in the encyclopedia. We, we could do that for queer spaces. It would be absolutely joyful. But like Josh said, we only had 240 pages. Gotcha. Now, do we have a question for Mark on mass rounds? Mr. McDonald's and then you, Pat. I'm wondering how much travel was involved in preparing this. Did you get to many of these places or were you relying on third parties for information? This was all during COVID. I had the initial conversation with the RIBA. I think it was three days after we went into lockdown, the first lockdown in the UK. (laughs) Unfortunately, this is, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, this was a journey of Zoom calls of FaceTime conversations. Uh, Now that you could travel, where are the places that you found out for the book that you go, I really want to go. I can say two things. So Adam's just been to Argentina and went to the amazing Trans Memory Archive, which does exactly what it says on the tin, which is trying to revive, for want of a better word, the memory of trans people by digitizing analog photographs predominantly. It's a very important archive and where I'd absolutely love to go. In fact, we have lots of spaces in, in Argentina and in Latin America. But I recently went to Plas Nauwith as Newith in Fluid in North Wales, which is the home of the two, what we don't now understand as lesbians, who eloped there in the 1790s and built their own sort of alternative Gothic domesticity where they could be together and lived a sort of harmonious life of self-improvement for, for 50 years together in the face of a, a sort of a heteronormative society. I want to go to all of them and we're ticking them off slowly but surely. In the US, of course, there's history of the Green Book, which Black people used in the 30s, 40s, 50s to find safe places to be able to travel. Uh, Is there a history or to what extent is there a history of similar guides? Royfield referenced a map of Soho. It through history. Is there any history of guidebooks? At least it wasn't illegal to be black. So I wonder if there was a sort of uh, subterranean uh, au contraire we couldn't be going out with black in when the sun went down it was illegal to be black then you could be summarily lynched take your point but to publish a guidebook which 
speed, sure. at least, and yeah. that might not have been true in the UK and other sure. places. No, I think it's an amazing question. I haven't had it before. I, my Adam might know. You're talking about a sort of a queer bidecker, but I don't know of that, of one like that. No, perhaps not at all. Actually, I just posted a thing to the map corner Facebook group about it last week, so I will bump it up. About what? Like a kind of guidebook that was published regularly over a number of decades, actually. I'll dig it out and... Oh, good. Can you send that? Yeah. There are map projects that are doing similar things, but it's not exactly what you're saying. Queer so, map, for example. I think there's things now that there was the issue that it was very dangerous to publish anything. Like, as was just pointed out, if it could be traced back to you, you could be put into prison. I know in Zurich, for instance, there was a mail circular chain, or I don't know what they're called, like a mail chain, anonymously between each other to say where the next queer event was going to be happening in order to avoid the police. So there were non-traditional forms of publishing. And I know that there's other examples like that in other places, ways of distributing locations, ways of distributing information, sometimes in code, that that were, I guess, like a kind of green book, but much more fragmented, much more conditioned. And, you know, there was also specific types of language. So in in the UK, we had something called Polari, which was a, a type of pidgin English that was spoken not just by gay men, but also by other immigrant communities. But gay men harnessed it as a way of communicating between each other and letting each other know, even in public spaces, what they thought, but also where they would meet and what was going on and what was planned in those locations. So queer people have quite a sophisticated, varied way, or had quite sophisticated and various ways of sharing spatial information and time-based information with each other that is wouldn't necessarily just be a published book per se, but maybe is comparable to that. Thank you for that, Adam. Ronald, you have the honor of being the last person to ask the gentleman here a question. A very good. Similarly, as Pat or Claire talked about the now that you can travel and we talked about guides. Do you envision that at some point, for example, today, when we look at a Google Maps and we look for travel directions from, let's say, London, Manchester, via car, it takes you up to the M40, or it recommends the fastest or cheapest train, would you envision that we add a queer slant when you go from point A to point B, it recommends a completely different journey? that is more historic and more relevant as opposed to take the M40 and you'll get there in three hours and 45 minutes, for example. It's a fascinating question. Insofar as that would be a safe thing to do, it could be interesting. And Queering the Map is rather similar to that. Do you know Queering the Map? Which is, again, it's a kind of sexual geography of queer experiences from the grassroots, which is a really powerful tool of knowing where the kind of queer hotspots are, for want of a better word, right through time. That's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. I don't, I don't know. Something that I would like to point out, that's again contingent on the acceptability of queerness and queer history. Something like that might be very possible in liberal places like Manchester and London. But even within the UK, I think there's a limit to how much people would want their spaces, especially if they exist today, to be shared. And also internationally, we couldn't include, at least from my experience of gathering spaces, the majority of spaces I would like to, I wanted to include in the book couldn't be included in the book because people didn't feel that it was safe to share them. They didn't feel safe 
sharing the fact that they were writing or knew about them. So actually there's a kind of, we have a space that's just X, parked X, and there's a blurry photo in the book. We could have had lots of those, but obviously we didn't want to have too many just blurred photos for spaces. And so there is a great limitation that means that they cannot be just shared in a kind of open source open digital way that you can with much less contentious information. Thank you for that great question and thank you Adam for the answer. Claire, you know what, could listen to these pair all evening but we do need to get on with the quiz. Everybody will know this is the, I'm exactly the high point, second to the main interview, definitely one of the highs actually of the podcast which is the Map Corner Quiz. And the winner of the quiz gets the accolade, the honour of actually doing an audio postcard in a future episode. Question one. Along with the oldest university, Mexico City boasts the oldest still surviving street on the American continent. But when was the street established? Was it around 1380, 1420 or 1450? Along with the oldest university, Mexico City boasts the oldest still surviving street on the American continent. But when was this street established? Was it around 1380, around 1420, or around 1450? Question number two. What is the origin of the name Campala? Is it A, Camp of Captain Allen, B, Centre of Learning, or C, Hill of the Impala? What is the origin of the name Campala? Is it A, Camp of Captain Allen, B, Centre of Learning, or C, Hill of the Impala. Question number three. What proportion of the area of Amsterdam is canals or harbours? Is it A, 15%, B, 20%, or C, 25%? What proportion of the area of Amsterdam is canals or harbours? Is it 15%, 20%, or 25%? Question number four. When was Dhaka formally announced as the capital of the newly independent state of Bangladesh? Was it A, 1971, B, 1972, or C, 1973? When was Dhaka formally announced as the capital of the newly independent Bangladesh? Was it A, 1971, B, 1972, or C, 1973? Question number five. What's the name of the major river on which Per is built? That's Perth of Australia, by the way. I was just about to ask you which, which Per. Is it A, Swan River, B, Orange River, or B, Fitch River? What's the name of the major river on which Perth in Western Australia is built? Is it A, Swan River, B, Orange River, or C, Fitch River? Question number six. How many castles feature on the coat of arms of Havana? Is it A, 1, B, 3, or C, 5? How many castles feature on the coat of arms of Havana in Cuba? Is it A, 1, B, 3, or C, 5? Question number 7. When was Glasgow's population at its highest? Was it A, the 1880s, B, the 1950s, or C, the 1990s? Again, the question, when was Glasgow's population at its highest? Was it A, the 1880s, B, the 1950s, or C, the 1990s? As always, Claire, these are not easy. 
Last question. How is Osaka described on the Japan Tourist Board website? A. The cultural heart of Japan. B. Japan's spiritual heartland. Or C. Bright, gaudy and playful. Again, the question. How is Osaka described on the Japanese Tourist Board website? A. The cultural heart of Japan. B. Japan's spiritual heartland. Or C. Bright, gaudy and playful. And I believe I had a conversation with somebody just two days ago who lived in Osaka for three years, English person in Osaka for three years. So I think I know the arts, but I don't think. They described Osaka as being the Japanese equivalent to Birmingham. Just saying. So I think I can guess at the answer. Claire. Spiritual Heartlander, Claire. I should say that the quiz is based on, they're all locations that are featured in the Queer Spaces book, although nothing in terms of the content of the book, because I figured that not everyone would have seen it. So it's just, again, educated guesses about random things you may or may not know about these random places. Gotcha. Look, Claire, it occurred to me that we've been thinking that people want to do an audio postcard, so try their hardest at the quiz. But maybe people are throwing it, saying, oh my God, I don't do an old you know, postcard. They actually know the answers and don't come up with the correct answer. So I'm, I'm looking at you, Ronald. I don't know how many audio postcards you've done, sir. Just saying. Just saying. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> from you moaning that I made the quiz too difficult. So I, 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 I actually have one ready that I haven't emailed you. And that's my. <laughs> and by the way, just before we go on to the next bit of the show, because I know you've got it all queued up ready to go there, Claire. Don't think, Pat, I haven't realised that you've been all patriotic there with your Union Jacks behind. Oh, yeah. yeah. Tea party tomorrow. It's an excuse to eat smoked salmon sandwiches and some some bakewell tarts. Are we invited? Absolutely. Please come. You know what? You can have to email us all your address and pay for our flight, plane tickets. And if we can't stop it, yours. The Airbnb, and I know for a fact, Nick Roworth and I are really looking forward to it. Are you looking forward to it, Nick? <laughs> and it's lovely to see you, Janet. All right, Claire Asprey, next bit of the show. It's the social media roundup. It's been a couple of months since we recorded, and so I was just looking back at some of the things that were most popular and commented on the Facebook. I think one was quite recently, I think it was, actually we had it from Magic at Mungo's on Twitter, but I think Royfield, you posted it to the Facebook group, which is this slightly daft map saying, if you get murdered in Europe, will your de- will the detective be sad and a cold b wet c drunk or sexy i think was the other thing so just categorize different areas of europe by whether their detectives are i think really to be honest a lot of the time certainly i'm thinking of famous scottish detectives so they're usually sad cold wet and drunk and possibly sexy like they're covering all their bases there it's one of these that's it's a very subjective a distinction between with Richie Nation States there, which it was a lot of fun. A lot of people commented on that. The other one you quoted was Royfield, I think you posted that as well, which was this we're getting to be a few of these now. Country, which is like world all but and that's another one that people are having a go at. And actually while we're doing that, oh he's doing it now, look, I can see his stats. One that just launched in the last week that you might want to be aware of is called Herbal by Alistair Ray. And I seem feel like I'm slightly better at that one. It plots major cities in a place and then the outline and then it tells you what it is. That's one to look out for as well, herbal. And I might, if I haven't posted the link already, I will do that. Another sort of 
slightly daft map of I think mainly Europe one which got a lot of chat was the what do they call roller coasters in different parts of Europe and what I really admired there was how Pam Davis got well into it and actually went away and researched the etymology and also looked up the name for roller coasters in Esperanto just as a bonus if you need to know the way to a roller coaster in Esperanto it's on the Fervojo which is a wave railway. There you go. But what was interesting is how some parts of Europe call them American mountains and some parts of Europe call them Russian mountains. But the further you go from Russia, the more likely they are to be Russian mountains. That's the other thing. Didn't really understand it. Anyway, there you go. Fish has put quite a few great maps into the Facebook group recently. One that's really just beautiful and is a perennial favourite is the kind of river system of the world and particularly in the USA. You see the spread of certain river systems. But the one that I would... Oh, no, Clay, you can't move on. Clay, you can't move on. Because oh, okay. I think that map is fascinating and beautiful. It's beautiful in that just the colours that are used. So America is black, and then each river system has a different colour. And forget the colour of the Mississippi Delta, the Mi- Mississippi Basin. But, my gosh, over half of America is tributaries to the Mississippi and that sort of thing, which is so amazing from that map. Every other river is minor leagues compared to the Mississippi and it just dominates so much of the Midwest, the whole Midwest. The other thing is what is fascinating about it is as a student of historical political borders, you can clearly see the Louisiana Purchase is the Mississippi and all of its rivers. And then... There's a river system, which is just to the north, which goes, obviously, is the Hudson Bay. And up until about 1818, before the 57 powers, the straight line, there was a wavy line between British North America and the United States. And it encompassed the bottom of that river system, which went to the Hudson Bay. So it shows that the mapping of tributaries pre of the 19th century was that spot on that the encompassed colonial holdings accurately there you go it's just what yeah, yeah. we might need to say that and we've seen some we've seen some great maps also about how rivers have changed their course as well over time and that's always an interesting one particularly in some of those sort of delta areas where they do absolutely move around a bit therefore they're not the most reliable borders one might suggest but yeah so the other one that tyrant posted that i thought was fantastic and you had to really sort of go into it and have a look was the one around export the top export of each country in which i discovered the top export of ireland was blood i would not have guessed that and so there was a load of fascinating stuff in there and it was all categorized by a blood came into the medical supplies category i think and different you know, different kinds of things that were the top experts exports of different countries but obviously we're seeing quite a lot of volatility in world food markets right now because of the impact of conflict in ukraine on kind of wheat supplies to some very vulnerable places and just goes to show that what would be at risk if certain parts of the world were suddenly unavailable to us there you go i didn't know you could do a huge amount of trading blood it never really occurred to me but there you go so barely does and just one honorable mention on twitter really and that's one that i reposted from thomas forth who does a lot of kind of election mapping but he did this fantastic I love it when people overlay election maps on other things and he did an overlay of the french presidential elections based on French official wine regions to see which 
types of wine regions voted for which candidates in the election. And you could make judgments as you wish. There are lots of ways of cutting the French presidential election by urban and rural areas, by north and south, all these sort of things. But he did it by wine region and showed certain wine regions went for certain candidates. And I just thought that was, there, there was a lot of fun to be had in that. I do love one of those sort of slightly bizarre election maps. Yeah, there was a fascinating map which somebody posted some while ago, which I'm almost positive that we picked up, which was about a composition of the soil in the South United States and how that maps with the black population, which of course had to do with slavery. And it's just amazing how you can take things which feel like they're not connected and they absolutely are. Answers to the quiz, because I know Janet, so one is sat there with bated breath. She's saying, today is my day. Hey, I'm going to do an audio postcard. So Janet, my money's on you. Let's go for it. Question number one. Along with the oldest university, Mexico City boasts the oldest still surviving street on the American continent. But when was the street established? Now, you said these are educated guesses. Now, obviously, this was the at it's either the Aztec culture or it's the or it's the one before, and I cannot remember what that is called. So, Columbus gets to the New World in 1492. So I'm guessing, Claire, it's either 1380 or 1320 or 1420. I'm going to go for 1380. 1420. You are correct. Yes. Brilliant. Question number two. What's the origin of the name Kampala? Camp of Captain Allen, Center of Learning, or Hill of the Impala? Kampala, Impala, is a camp, a hill. I'm going to go Center of Learning. It's the Hill of the Impala. It was right there in front of us. It sounded too obvious to be right. But, yeah. What portion of the area of Amsterdam is canals or harbours? My guess is... It's a lot of water. These are so tricky because it could be any of them. 20%. I'm scared to the middle. It's 25%. Wow. Wow. Dutch know how to damn things, don't they? So when was Dhaka formally announced as the capital of the newly independent Bangladesh? This is the only one I'm pretty confident on. 1971. That's where I've got you wrong, Royfield, because 1971 was when the independence was announced. I knew you would would know that. But as it happens, Dhaka was formally announced as a capital in 1972. Trick question. Well done. And that's the only one I was confident of. What's the name of the major river on which Perth is built? I've utterly no idea. Anyone, Swan River. No idea. You're correct, Swan River. That's a guess. Number six, how many castles speech on the coat of arms of Havana? I've never been to Cuba, really want to go. I thought this might fall into your flag obsession. Favourite of the cities. Cities, too many cities for you to be on top of those flags. We haven't had a seat. I'm going to go five. It's three. Yeah. All right. It's another tricky one. When was Glasgow's population at its highest? Now. It's definitely not the 1990s. That throw that one away. The population of Glasgow would have been at its height, possibly in the 1950s or the 1880s, because 1880s is the height of empire, and there's a time when Glasgow used to be called the second city of the empire. 
because the amount of industry and shipbuilding. So it's either the 1880s or the 1950s. I'm going to go, I really don't want to, 1880s. It's the 1950s, I'm afraid. If I knew it was the 1990s. The fun thing about this is actually Royfield had the whole quiz with all the answers for at least the last week and could have revised. Yeah. But he likes to play it on folks. Now, last question. How is the Saka described on the Japanese tourist board website? Now, I did say during the show that I was told that Osaka, the accent in Osaka in Japan is seen as a bit of a joke in the way that the Brummie accent is in Britain. And that it's somewhat, even though it's quite diverse by Japanese standards, it's seen as a bit rough, ready, and a bit gaudy. So I'm going to go bright, gaudy, and playful. You are correct. Boom. And that's only because I had this conversation literally three nights ago. I got three, though a couple of those were 50-50. Could have had a massive five, but that was really fiendish. I'm going to go on to gallery view. Oh, and I am looking specifically at, who am I looking at? Ronald. Ronald. Oh, no, it's Janet. Janet, you've nailed this, haven't you, Janet? Right. If you've got all eight correct, wave. Seven, six, whoa, two sixes, Ronald and Janet. All right, Ronald, tell us which two you got wrong. The Kampala one and one of the earlier ones, but definitely the Kampala one I got wrong. Janet, bask, bask in your glory, missus. Which two did you get wrong though? All of a sudden, J Janet's got r rather stubby. Janet. Oh, sorry. I got a Starker and Glasgow. And as a Scott, I shouldn't have got that Glasgow one wrong. But there we are. Oh, Janet, fiendish. You know, I put the false answers in, to be honest. <laughs> Quite fun waking up the false answers. I think, Janet, I think it's obvious who won today's quiz. As the official adjudicator, I'm giving it to you. Ronald already has an audio postcard to send us. So I think, Janet, that honour goes to you. You have won the quiz this month. Well done, Janet. Extraordinary. That shouldn't happen. Yeah, because I got none in the last one I did. Or one. You were keeping your powder dry until today. Well done. Good guesswork. So you got to create a three to four minute piece on anywhere on planet Earth, as long as you have some level of a connection to it, you can wax lyrical. Send me an email, royfield at gmail.com, with just a voice note taken from your phone, and I'll put it together, a bit of music, and it will feature on a future podcast. Brilliant. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, Claire, I think we've just about had a tip-top show. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, I think I'm going to give you a fact, and then it'll be time to fold up our maps. All right. My map fact for this month is that I just saw this on a BBC News thing that Turkey wants everyone to stop calling it Turkey and start calling it Turkey. And apparently they're going to apply to the UN to officially have the name changed. I didn't even know 
I figured if it's your own country, you can call yourself what you like. Sure. <laughs> I don't see why the UN should be the arbiter of how it's described. Anyway, there you go. But they don't. The rumor is that they just don't like being associated with the bird turkey and also the slang term of something that goes horribly wrong. They want people to stop calling turkey and call it turkeya. So we can get straight in on that. Yeah, and countries do frequently change their name or at least correct the rest of the world as to how Pedro pronounced them. Iran, Persia, Burma, Myanmar, Eswatini, this does happen. Yeah, big ups to Turkey. So that's our fact. Turkey, you beat. So easy to do with crumbs. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, Istanbul's what's my favourite city as well. Anyway, all right. Oh. If you ever want to go somewhere and see more flags per head of the population than you do in the United States, which is, you got to go somewhere in the United States. What one we call it again, Claire? Istanbul. Those red flags are everywhere with images of Kamel Atatürk. My gosh, if you're under no illusions what country you're in when you get to, I'm going to say Istanbul, Turkey. Right. Now, that's it. That's been a tip top map corner. And I'd like to thank everybody for putting up with my slapdash organization of this podcast. The fact that Ken's audio postcard wasn't done in time, but will make the podcast. Pat, do not worry. You have actually been on a podcast, your audio postcard. Sarah Spilsbury is a knitting or crocheting, and you're going to have to show us what you've been doing. I've been knitting. It's going to be a UV neck sleeveless sweater. Nice. But you haven't asked me for my size. <laughs> It's the first one I've made, so you wouldn't want this one, probably. This is where I have my skills. We need to meet up and have a cup of tea, cup of coffee, because I'm back in Brumwell. I'm in Brighton, but I'm back in the UK. Everybody, there you go. That's been your map corner. I think it's been awesome. Claire, it is time that we do what? Time that I tell you that next recording is with Jim Chevalier, who set up the City Strides app, and then it's time to fold up our map. Cheerily. Take care, everybody. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.